This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. On Friday, President Biden's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan continued its spiral into chaos as thousands of desperate refugees, fearful of Taliban retribution, swarmed the airport in Kabul, creating the specter of a humanitarian disaster unseen since the fall of Saigon nearly 50 years ago. With undeniable desperation, Afghans clung to a U.S. military plane as it took off today from Kabul airport fleeing from the Taliban any way they could, at least two fell to their death. On the ground, more pandemonium and gunshots. The Pentagon says U.S. troops shot and killed two armed Afghans in self-defense, as 6,000 forces will be used to airlift Americans out. America's 20-year war is ending as it started, with the Taliban in charge. Unfortunately, Biden's speech Friday maintained the defiant tone that has punctuated his media appearances since the debacle began. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. What was needed was empathy, patience, an acknowledgement of the mess that was unfolding, an explanation, a reiteration of why we're leaving now and not in six months. Instead, we got blame-shifting, finger-pointing, and defensive claims of higher wisdom. After a week of intense criticism, President Biden stood in the East Room of the White House this afternoon to defend his handling of the crisis in Afghanistan. The president tried to put a positive spin on the chaotic situation in Kabul since the Taliban took the capital Sunday. The president says about 13,000 people have been evacuated since the military airlift began last weekend. But there's such a crush of people trying to escape that flights out had to be delayed today. At the airport in Kabul, scenes of frustration and desperation play out as thousands of Afghans who helped fight America's longest war are also trying to flee. Why not level with the American people? This whole thing has been a gigantic fuck-up, not unlike the war itself. For the past 20 years, administration after administration has found itself drowning in the quicksand of Afghanistan. Why would the withdrawal be any easier? These are America's best and brightest who came to the messy endgame of the Afghanistan war with spotless resumes. That's one of the parallels to the Vietnam War, where a similar group of brilliant policymakers who had rarely experienced failure was confounded by an obdurate enemy from another century. If the buck stops with you, Mr. President, then just tell us the truth or some truth. This is one of the largest, most difficult airlifts in history, President Biden said in an address from the White House while admitting that the past week has been heart-wrenching. He said the United States military has airlifted 13,000 people out of Afghanistan since Saturday, including 5,700 on Thursday, by far the highest one-day figure so far. I can't believe the world abandoned Afghanistan. (laughs) Our friends are going to get killed. They're going to kill us. 
Our women are not going to have any more rights. In addition, civilian flights and the military forces of other countries are ferrying people out of the country. Any American who wants to come home, we will get you home, Mr. Biden said. He has also promised not to abandon Afghans who risked their lives by working for the U.S. government during the war. But let me be clear. Any American who wants to come home, we will get you home. Make no mistake, this evacuation mission is dangerous. It involves risks to our armed forces, and it's being conducted under difficult circumstances. I cannot promise what the final outcome will be, or what it will be that it will be without risk of loss. But as Commander-in-Chief, I can assure you that I will mobilize every resource necessary. And as an American, I offer my gratitude to the brave men and women of the U.S. Armed Forces are carrying out this mission. The Wall Street Journal put it best in an op-ed placing the fault squarely on the Biden administration's desire to maintain positive optics in the face of something far more gruesome. The thing that they were most concerned about was the optics of a chaotic evacuation. Well, they got exactly what they were most concerned of by failing to do what was right when we could have done it. It was weird from the beginning. The withdrawal plan always seemed abrupt and arbitrary. Why did the White House think the 20th anniversary of 9-11 was the right day for a pullout? What picture of America do they carry in their heads that told them that would be symbolically satisfying? It is as if they are governed by symbols with no understanding of what the symbols mean. Do you see any parallels between this withdrawal and what happened in Vietnam with some people feeling... None whatsoever. Zero. What you had is you had entire brigades breaking through the gates of our embassy. Six, if I'm not mistaken. The Taliban is not the, South, the North Vietnamese army. They're not, they're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. It is not at all comparable. So the question now is, where do they go from here? That, the jury is still out. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country. The United States has rushed troops and diplomatic reinforcements to the Kabul airport in recent days to speed up visa processing for Afghans. American commanders are negotiating daily with their Taliban counterparts, the former insurgents they battled for nearly two decades to ensure that evacuees can reach the airport. But the reassurances from Washington belied the fear and futility on the ground. It's getting better. But, you know, it feels more like a a desperate evacuation now than at any given point. You can just feel the desperation. Naturally, former President Trump has something to say about the situation, despite the fact that his fucking decision to withdraw and negotiate with the Taliban precipitated what's happening today. Mr. President, given the current status of Afghanistan, where we are right now, and and it is a mess, it is a disaster, if they call you in to fix it, what could be done? How could we fix it? Well, this I had a relationship with a leader. You know, I get criticized by some of the radical left. Oh, he called them. Well, who are you going to call? You call the people you're against. And I had a very strong conversation with him. And then Abdul. And I said, look, uh, here's the story. If you do anything to hurt Americans, anything that's out of line, we're going to hit you at your town and we're going to hit you harder than anybody's ever been hit before. 
And we got that out of the way. And I said, do you understand that? And he said, yes, I understand that. And he did. He understood it. It would have been a whole, had the election not been rigged, this would have been, we would be in a whole different position right now. But Trump was never one for accountability. Instead, we have to listen to his fucking blathering. We are now being treated to the disgusting spectacle of people who steered the car into oncoming traffic complaining about the resulting collision. Creating the greatest strategic humiliation that we've ever seen as a country, and it was something that we should have stopped, and the generals should have done something. They should have done something. They should have talked to him and said, look, Commander-in-Chief, but you just couldn't have done that. If he had va- evacuated, if he just moved the people out, he should have done it, and he should have done it first. He had to have done it first. You know, sometimes in life, decisions are made. And when those decisions are made, if they're bad decisions, you've got to get away from them. And you've got to get away from them fast. As recently as April 18th, Trump said, getting out of Afghanistan is a wonderful and positive thing to do. I plan to withdraw on May 1st, and we should keep as close to that schedule as possible. I started the process. All the troops are coming back home. They couldn't stop the press. 21 years is enough, don't we think? 21. They couldn't stop the process. They wanted to, but it was very tough to stop the process when other things are at. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Now he is calling the situation not acceptable and saying that the troop withdrawal should have been conditions-based, which wasn't part of the deal he struck with the Taliban. He is demanding that Biden resign in disgrace for what he has allowed to happen in Afghanistan. For example, for carrying out Trump's policy. Bizarrely, Trump is even castigating Biden for failing to blow up all forts as if the U.S. forces were fighting in the Middle Ages. And frankly, I said, take the soldiers out, but before you leave, blow up all the forts, because we built these forts that are being now used by the enemy. Trump's partner in fucking idiocy, the misgovernment, is former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Not only did he oversee the negotiations with the Taliban, Pompeo convinced Pakistan to release from prison Mullah Abdul Ghani Bardar, Afghanistan's new president. Bardar later met with Mike Pompeo. This was the infamous meeting that was scheduled around the time of September 11th. They met on September 12th, 2020. Originally, uh, Trump wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David on 9-11, which like, Good God. And there's all sorts of other things, again, happening at this time. This is the run-up to the election. Uh, And so this was just sort of listed as, you know, one more psychotic, anti-American, reckless, disgusting move by the Trump administration in terms of our foreign policy. Pompeo met with Baradar last year and bragged about it on his Twitter feed, thereby legitimizing the Taliban and undercutting the Afghan military. I just want to ask you one more question about your record, though, sir. You were the first American Secretary of State to ever meet with the Taliban, and you talked about how they had agreed to join us in the fight against terrorism. Here you are, sir. The gentleman I met with agreed that they would break that relationship and that they would work alongside of us to destroy, deny resources to, and have al-Qaeda depart from that place. Do you regret giving the Taliban that legitimacy? Do you regret 
pressing the Afghan government to release 5,000 prisoners, which they did, some of whom are now back on the battlefield fighting with the Taliban. And then there's Mike Pence, no stranger to public humiliation himself, playing the blame game, hoping to score some political points. The Biden administration's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan is a foreign policy humiliation, he thundered, unlike anything our country has endured since the Iran hostage crisis. Mike, just stop. Your own people wanted to hang you a few months ago, okay? Who are you trying to impress? Given how many other policies Trump fucked up beyond all recognition, from the pandemic to migrant children, there is every reason to expect that he would have found some way to outdo Biden in mismanaging Afghanistan. At least Biden is now trying to airlift U.S. allies out of Afghanistan. Better late than never. It's hard to imagine Trump doing even that much, given how much they hate and fear immigrants. Charlie Kirk, head of the pro-Trump group Turning Point USA, set the tone by accusing Biden of wanting Afghanistan to fall because he wants a couple hundred thousand more Ilan Omars to come into America to change the body politic permanently. This was all intentional. Joe Biden let it fall apart to now say, oh, I'm so sorry. I guarantee you Joe Biden's speech this afternoon will talk about refugee assistance and relocation support. Now, Joe Biden's going to be scrambling to make good on it, and the liberal media will love it. They'll say, oh, yes, okay, now I get it. Joe Biden is now fixing his own problem. Joe Biden is stepping up, and he's allowing a flow of people from the Middle East into America. Thank you, Joe Biden. You're such a hero. You're so benevolent. You're so respectful. You're so compassionate. Do you see what's going on here? What's going on here is Joe Biden wants a couple hundred thousand more Elon Omars to come into America to change the body politic permanently. This is all part of the right's obsession with replacement theory. Not to be outdone, Tucker fucking Carlson weighed in by warning of millions of Afghan refugees coming to the United States saying, so first we invade and then we are invaded. And if history is any guide, and it's always a guide, we will see many refugees from Afghanistan resettle in our country in coming months, probably in your neighborhood. And over the next decade, that number may swell to the millions. So first we invade and then we're invaded. It is always the same. But I stand by my earliest statement that a vast majority of Americans support the withdrawal and will continue to do so despite the awful gut-wrenching images coming out of Kabul. The question remains, who will win the political battle that is forming behind the scenes to control the narrative? The GOP is gearing up for Benghazi too and relish a fight with the Biden administration. But Biden is betting that most Americans favor a unilateral withdrawal and believes in a few weeks most will forget the heart-wrenching scenes unfolding on live television. Give me an F! Give me a U! Give me a C! Give me a K! What's that spell? What's that spell? What's that spell? Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. And now for the main event. In all honesty, I don't know a goddamn thing about soldiering or war. Unlike Trump, I will not declare that I know more than the generals. Instead, 
I reached out to one of the best, General Mark Hurtling, to help me to understand what the hell is going on in Afghanistan and hopefully help you separate fact from politics and propaganda. General Hurtling spent 37 years in the American Armed Forces and during his time as a soldier served in armor cavalry planning operations and training positions. He commanded every organization from platoon to field army. Most notably, Hurtling commanded the U.S. Army's 1st Armored Division in Iraq during the troop surge in 2007 to 2008 and retired as commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe. He is a keen and fair observer and proportions blame where it is due upon President Biden, but also understands the role Donald Trump played in creating this whole mess. He joins me on mea culpa just moments after President Biden's White House address as the chaos in Kabul grows increasingly dire. He brings to us a clear-eyed, sober analysis of the situation. So let's listen now to that conversation. So General Hurtling, the chaos that has ensued around the Afghanistan withdrawal has President Biden on the defensive. Now, in your mind, watching what has taken place, could this all have been avoided, or was this the result that was inevitable? We had to leave at some point. What's your thoughts? Well, Mike, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've, I've conducted uh, planning and the early execution of what's called a NEO operation, a non-combatant ev evacuation operation, in another country, which I can't talk about. And depending on the situation in each one of those countries, whether it's a permissive environment or a contested environment, how many people you got to get out of there— it's always bad. I mean, you, you go in with a planning factor thinking we're going to get X number out it soon triples, quadruples, quintuples, and it just keeps growing. In a combat environment like we see in Afghanistan right now, it, it's so much more difficult. This is a very complex mission for both the military and the State Department to conduct. Having said that, I think the plan of, uh, you know, the Biden decision to get out of Afghanistan is a good one. I think the initial plan of how it was going to work was probably solid. But what happened was a lot of unknowns came into uh, play. And that's what has caused what we see as the, the chaos taking place right now. And it's being exacerbated by the level of fear from the Afghan citizens. Yes, but you referred to it as Biden's plan to exit. Now, somewhere along the line, yeah. I distinctly remember, and I know it was written about um, by the Associated Press, that it was actually under President Trump's administration that he signed a peace deal with the Taliban going back to February of 2020 when, and I'm going to quote now, he optimistically proclaimed that, and I quote, we think we'll be successful in the end. And then, of course, Mike Pompeo then decided that he had to jump in and asserted that the administration was seizing the best opportunity for peace in a generation. So now that Biden was sort of um, required to exit Afghanistan, there are things that he did that he could have delayed it, which he did. There are things that he didn't have to do simply because he's now the president of the United States. How does all of that continue to play into the notion of chaos? Yeah. Okay. That's a great follow-on question because what I want to go back to, what I just explained about the NEO operation that's ongoing now that we're all watching, that was Biden's plan. The preparatory plan to that 
all happened under the Trump administration. And that in and of itself was dysfunctional. Uh, it was a collaboration with the Taliban, you know, a sworn enemy without the Afghan government. So the Afghan government felt undercut, uh, the Ghani government. It further exacerbated a lack of trust between the military and the Afghan government, which caused problems. It gave, in my view, it gave the Taliban a head start. They were already uh, contesting more than half of Afghanistan. But when the Trump regime negotiated with the Taliban in Doha, and Trump then invited them to Camp David, which was shut down, which seems to be uh, forgotten by many of our GOP friends right now. Uh, you know, things started to go south very quickly in Afghanistan. At the same time, remember, there were over 10,000, in fact, about 12,000 uh, troops in Afghanistan when Trump was still in office. And he cut those back before he left in January. So he left Biden with a smaller troop presence with an undercut Afghan government, with a uh, Afghan national army that was questioning the, the government's ability. And we also got to include in that a lack of uh, uh, ability to confirm his nominees for different positions or share the plan of what was going on with the Biden administration it was, as it was going on, uh, as it was coming in rather to office. So what you're seeing is a perfect storm of you know, undercutting the allies, uh, uh, reducing the size of the force, not allowing the new team to get on board and have a transition of power, uh, a constant drumbeat against the intelligence community uh, during the Trump administration that passed over the Biden administration. All of those things, in my view, created a perfect storm for what Biden had to do. Now, we all knew Biden was going to make the decision. He, he has said for a very long time he wanted out of Afghanistan, and it has been too long of a period in there. But I think all of those things that led up to the Biden decision and how the Biden uh, administration executed this has contributed significantly to this, as the Germans say, Scheiße spiel that we're seeing yeah. now. Well, you bring up the notion of the perfect storm, and I totally agree. Um, I don't know much about war. I'm not going to profess like Trump did that I know more than the generals, um, despite the fact that, and I say this all the time and with all due respect, uh, General, he's a fucking moron who doesn't know shit from shit and scary that he would actually even make a statement because the rest of us in the world right now, people not involved in the military or with military knowledge like yourself, we're looking to people like you in order to give us the answers. Let me tell you what we do know, the average person on the street. We know that the Afghan war has cost the United States, the American taxpayer, a fortune. And Joe Biden just talked about it during his um, Afghanistan address, somewhere between one to two trillion. And I have to be honest, I've looked at some of the reports that are coming out. And I would say it probably is closer, if not more, than $2 trillion spent over the course of the past 20, going on 21 years, right? Absolutely. What Americans know is dollars. We know money. And here's what I want to just sort of bring up to you. What is $2 trillion really equal to the American people? Well, for one thing, it would absolutely end homelessness, Right. Because according to this report, it would take 20 billion dollars to 
get rid of homelessness. And it's a big problem that we have here in New York. Medication for seniors. It would wipe out the need for seniors to have to share in any type of copay whatsoever. It talks about canceling all student debt and canceling all medical debt. It'll pay for universal four-year college for everyone. Right? Anyone who wants to go to school, you want to go to school? You want to get good grades? You don't get good grades? We're not paying for it. You get good grades? We pay for it. We're talking about universal pre-K and you know all sorts of other programs that we all have to scratch our heads and say, wait, 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 wait. I understand the need for America to have gone into Afghanistan post-September 11th, but Really? $2 trillion spent over there over two decades when we could have benefited the American taxpayer the way we did? Explain to me, right? What were we doing there for so long? Why hasn't this happened? Because every president, every president, all past four, have all said the same thing. We need to leave Afghanistan. So why is Joe Biden the guy that's right now taking the brunt of all of the anger? And it's not just from the GOP. It's from Democrats as well. It is. Yeah, absolutely it is. I'll say something first, Michael. What I'll tell you, having been a soldier for 38 years, uh, first of all, war is expensive. Not just from the monetary standpoint that you just exhibited, but also from the people and the resources and what it does to the country. So I'm going to reinforce the idea that when our politicians ask the military to go to war, they better know what the hell they're asking us to do with a contrived end state and a desire to execute some type of strategy. Which gets to the answer to your question. What's happened over the last 20 years, we've had different administrations and, and I'm, I'm going to put the military and the intelligence community and the State Department and the president and everybody involved who didn't want to lose. Now, th- that's different than wanting to win. They didn't want to lose. Afghanistan was always a tough proposition. When you're talking about a values-based insurgency, which the Taliban is, I mean, it's a, it's a radical Islamist organization that has uh, as, its, as its core a political basis in, in, in religion uh, to lead a country, radical religion, it doesn't represent the whole of the Afghan people. So the, the, the fact that we've stayed there to try and make a new government in our own image was a mistake, in my view. Now, that's from a military guy. I, I should caveat, Michael, that uh, my war wasn't Afghanistan. You know, I was on the other side of the globe. My three plus years in combat were all in Iraq. I visited uh, soldiers in Afghanistan multiple times to include our NATO allies that were working with me in in Europe. But I never served with with a weapon in Afghanistan. All of my fighting was done in Iraq. But Afghanistan is different. It is an extremely complex country. It's tough. Once you get in, it kind of sucks you in. And it makes you believe that you can win, that you can defeat the bad guys, that you can pull a nation together. And the cultural dynamics and the politics and the religion and the tribes are just too overwhelming. But unfortunately, I think our politicians, our military, our intelligence community continue to say we can do this when, in fact, we knew a long time ago 
there was not going to be a win or a success story out of Afghanistan. And, you know, I, too, should make a caveat here. When I was referring to how much the American taxpayers have spent over there, I was specifically talking financially because there's a whole nother sector yeah. here that deals with loss of life, injury, right, to our men and women, right, our brave men and women of the armed forces of the service. And, you know, there's no amount of money that we could place on that. And so, you know, for me, yeah. I'm actually excited to see United States out of Afghanistan. But that's just from my own personal opinion. Yeah, if, if, if I can add, though, Michael, because that, that's a good point. I've not only been to literally hundreds of memorial services for U.S. soldiers. I've also been to a couple of our NATO allies memorial service, one in Poland, one in Georgia, one in Ukraine folks that served in Afghanistan whose bodies came home to their families. And I was lucky to represent uh, or honored to represent the United States and memorial services in those countries. But the thing is, there's so many more Afghans that died, not just Afghan soldiers, but Afghan civilians. And we also got to remember, we were there for 20 years. Prior to that, the, Af the, the Taliban were there for almost a decade, beating people up and killing people. And prior to that, the Soviets were there. Uh, so you're talking about a, a, a society that has seen nothing but destruction. And it's a pretty good society. There are good people there, uh, but they've seen nothing but destruction. So I'm with you. I'm hope hopeful that things might turn out to be the better, although right now it's not looking real good in Afghanistan. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, check out last Thursday's episode with Mickey Royal, a former drug dealer, pimp, and enforcer. Royal turned his life around and transformed his nefarious existence and experience into an unlikely handbook on leadership with the publication of The Pimp Game, an instructional guide, and The Pimp Guide, Secrets of Mind Manipulation. So don't miss this episode. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests, and there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, like the July 6th interview with Master Pickpocket Barb Arno on how he spots a mark. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. General, you recently wrote on Twitter that, and I quote, every administration has a chaotic or screwed up foreign policy disaster. How the Biden administration recovers from this debacle in the coming days, weeks, and months will be very important to watch. 
Does this one not feel different, though, in that the GOP is dying to pivot away from their own madness and discussions of the election fraud and January 6th, as well as the people dying by droves from the Delta variant because of disastrous policy decisions driven by politics, by Donald Trump, by the GOP leaders? Yes, absolutely. And I'll reinforce that, Michael. You, you've mentioned you know, the, the, the deaths from COVID, the insurrection, uh, the support for Trump across the board. But I'd also add to that all the things that are going on with voter, voter rights right now. I mean, that was coming to a crescendo, uh, as well as the Biden administration's plan for infrastructure. All of those things were, were very positive in terms of getting back on the right track and now all I'm hearing from many on the right is Biden is so, so screwed up. He's demented. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's crazy. You know, this has been worthless. So, yes, it is very much of a distraction. And, and as I said in my Twitter feed, every administration uh, has a debacle at the very beginning of the administration where they shake out the team. Unfortunately, this particular one has been massively covered by cable networks and uh, social media and, and the, the, the piling on of the right, because they do, I, I believe you're right, they do want to deflect from so many bad things that are going on in terms of the divisiveness of Look, the country. I don't want to compare the coronavirus to the chaos that's going on in Afghanistan and um, Kabul right now. However, I want to remind people that 626,000 plus American lives have been lost based upon the bungling, the absolute bungling by Donald J. Trump of the coronavirus that he thought he was going to make fun of, that he was going to spit in its eye, that he was going to you know, uh, coin the Wuhan flu, the China virus. It is not. It is the Trump virus. And the death of these Americans is on his hands. Now, I'm not seeing 626,000 people in Afghanistan, in Kabul, by the airport right now, dying. So, you know, I really want to stress this out that there's a lot going on in our own country and I'm not trying to justify anything. I've been as vocal as anybody about the chaos that we see on television. I am also curious personally because I've also not heard of anyone being shot or being beaten by the Taliban as they're walking the streets to get into the airport. My belief is that They want America out and they're not going to do anything that's going to jeopardize military staying or anything. They're just letting people out. And I do believe that there are people that we have to get out, the ones that worked with our country in order to, you know, um, do what we've done over the last 20 years there, which I hate to say it's very hard to quantify. Um, What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm going to go back to your comparison about COVID, though. Um, you know, we have we have seen repeatedly, and, and I've heard the term heart-wrenching multiple times today as we see what's going on in Afghanistan. You know, the reporters are filming outside the airfield. Everyone's trying to get in. They're trying to get out. And by the way, we can talk about that in a second, too. Uh, and they're all describing it as heart-wrenching, and it is. But let me tell you, if we were to take those same cameras, 
that are filming outside the airport in Kabul into uh, a hospital down the street from me where I used to work and take it through the emergency every day for the last three months or so, that's pretty heart-wrenching too. And if you take it into some of the centers where people are, are objectively, uh, objectively going against the guidance in terms of getting vaccinated or wearing a mask and knowing that it kills potentially young people, and we have children and babies on ventilators now because they have contracted the disease, that's heart-wrenching too. The figure you pointed out, over 625,000 dead and so many more with long-term injuries, that's heart-wrenching and it's going to affect America. So I agree with you that, that there is, there is, we have to make a leveling between these two crises. And if we go to the airfield in, in Kabul right now, I know for a fact, having prepared and partially executed a NEO, that not all of the people who are surging the airfield right now are going to be allowed out. It is just people who don't want to be in Afghanistan because the Taliban's there. These are not those who work for the government. These are not, uh, many of them are not SIV recipients. I would venture to say that of the tens of thousands outside the airport right now, none of them are have immigrant visas. So we are conflating a rush during a panic to try and get on a plane to get the hell out of a place that they're afraid of with how much do the American people support those who supported us as well as getting the American citizens out. So there's some nuances all in this planning and execution within Kabul right now, but I think you're right to compare it to the disaster we've seen over the last several years in the in the previous administration. You know, because CNN has actually done a brilliant, brilliant job in covering people who are dying in hospitals. I watched my, my friend over there, Don Lemon, went back to Louisiana, to, and he sat and he spoke with a woman who went to the same high school that he did. Right. And um, she being on a ventilator, and probably, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think she may, maybe lost her life uh, to the, uh, I'm not 100% certain, so I don't want to say, but yeah. we've seen people that they have spoken to who were praying, say, I, you know, give me the vaccination. You know, why was I so stupid, you know, Love, loved ones, family members themselves passing. And I think CNN did a brilliant job in covering this. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. They are very different. But 626,000 plus Americans, that to me is a, real, is a real problem. And it's a problem on our soil back here in America. And I would like to see the same outrage by people. You know, you had a really amazing tweet that I just want to... Um, use as an example. You wrote on August 18th, it's interesting that we've seen more public questioning of Afghanistan policy slash strategy in the last three days than we've seen in the last several years. What's the deal with that? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's just it's just the the folks who want to weigh in, who take a snippet of information and say, I know what's going on. I mean, I've had conversations with friends and neighbors about what's really happening uh, from a military perspective in terms of the planning and execution of what's going on in Kabul right now. But everybody who, well, there, there are many who have not paid any attention to what's going on in Afghanistan and the complexities of that country, uh, not just the fighting and the, the humanitarian efforts that we've put in place over there, but now suddenly everybody 
uh, understands how many women have been liberated and and what's the deal with the intelligence and how there's still you know terrorists over there that are going to rebel and the Taliban why are they so loved how can we allow something like this to happen there are factors that contribute to all of these things and they are very complex even to the people who watch them on a daily basis the number of cultures within Afghanistan when you take a look at the Hazaras and the Pashtus and and all of the different cultures in Afghanistan you know and by the way it is still a civil war going on over there I think the American society is thinking, oh, the Taliban's taken over and it's a new government. No, no, no. They're fighting for their for their lives still to establish a government. And I'm not sure we're going to see any sense of clarity in the near future. It's just that they happen to be in, in Kabul with a whole lot of weapons. But it seems like everyone is saying, how could we have screwed this up so bad? Well, there have been indicators that we have faulted within Afghanistan for at least 15 years, at least 15 years. And I even go back to when I was the war plant, I was actually uh, assigned as a brand new job in August of 2001 on the joint staff, my first time ever in the Pentagon. I had come from a field operational assignment in California at Fort Irwin to the Pentagon for the first time in my life. And I was told I was gonna be the, the, the overseer of war plans on the joint staff. It's a sleepy job. Don't worry about it. It's going to be real easy. You can get through this joint job in two years. Well, a couple of days later, 9-11 happened and suddenly war plans really ratcheted up. During my time as the war planner, uh, we also made a decision to go into Iraq, which several of us thought was an extremely bad idea to take the focus off of the terrorist fight in Afghanistan to go to another country. But we were overwhelmed by the civilians. So we saluted and said, okay, we'll execute the way you want us to. Uh, and it was tough. So we took our eye on and off Afghanistan for 20 years. That's part of the problem. And I, I think I have to, unfortunately, kind of throw a diss at the American population. They ain't interested in this stuff. You know, they send their military off to war. They send some of their State Department officials off to war. And then it's, okay, it's out of my hands. Those guys have got it. So when things go bad or when you don't pay attention and, and you want to change it, it's not good to look in the rearview mirror. It's probably good to play a role in terms of who you elect as your public officials, who represents you in Congress and those kind of things. And, and sometimes we take the divisive approach approach as opposed to the smart approach in that regard. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you bring up the concept of military perspective as a former soldier and a general. How painful is the withdrawal to watch on a personal level to you, right? Because for the average warrior, for the average American soldier, right, who lost or, or American individual who lost friends or family or spilled their own blood, you know, with w what's going on. What do you think is going on through their minds? And how can we as Americans make a distinction between the war and the warriors, yeah, it's a great question, Mike. Thanks for asking it. Here's what I'll tell you. Uh, again, I'll, I'll repeat, my war was Iraq, not Afghanistan. So I've already had my moment of angst. Uh, you know, my last job in Iraq in 2008 was commanding the northern area of operation, which is where ISIS came through. So I knew I, I had five divisions of Iraqis that I used to partner with that were there. And I could tell you that one of those divisions was great. Two of them were pretty good. One was bad and one was flat out awful. 
The bad and the awful folded very quickly during the ISIS march. The other three divisions stood up and fought. But I watched that that issue every day because I was concerned about how it was going. These people were my friends. I knew them. They were my brothers in arms. And having lived over three years in Iraq, it was like, holy smokes, I gave my heart, my blood, my tears, my sweat, as well as did the X number of soldiers that I served with in this area of operation. It becomes a part of you. It really becomes a part of your gut. So you suffer with them. So now let's transfer to your question of those who served in Afghanistan. Uh, I've had contact with many of my colleagues, my former, my fellow soldiers that were both still are and were soldiers. And they're questioning, was this worth it? Uh, they're pained. They see their friends. They know their interpreters that are still over there. They sometimes know their interpreters' families. They pour their heart out when they go to war. It is the toughest emotional and intellectual and physical thing that you can imagine when you go into combat. So I'm concerned about those who are experiencing today what I experienced a couple of years ago when Iraq was under chaos. It seems to be worse now because of our departure and the way it's happening now. So to, to answer your final question, how do we separate between the war and the warrior, is just know that we ask our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, to, and Coast Guardsmen to do important things. They're young, and they go off and do them selflessly for their country and their fellow military personnel members. They sometimes don't get a say in the political aspects of going to war. They're just there to execute what the government tells them to do. And I would just ask all of America to remember that. And also, if they get the opportunity to, to, to see a soldier or to know if they know a soldier to say, how you doing? You doing all right? That, that's all it takes. And let them talk for a yeah. while, if they as, will. As well as a thank you. Thank you for putting your life yep. on the line for our democracy. And it's one of the reasons why yep. people took the January 6th insurrection as hard as they did. There are American yep. men and women overseas fighting for this country, fighting for our Constitution and our democracy. And yet here, a bunch of assholes dressed up in paramilitary if you want to be part of the military, go join the military. But instead, yeah. they go to Dick's Sporting Goods. They go pick themselves up a fucking helmet and a, and a body armor with some AR-15s or AK-47s. And they decide that they're, that they're going to be a Trump MAGA army, you know, walking around with the flag of Donald Trump and, you know, take the Capitol. I mean, it's there's, – there's no words. There's no words. There are no words. There are no words to that. And that's why so many who have taken the oath to support and defend the Constitution against now all enemies, foreign and domestic, which I've done multiple times, see that insurrection as a critical inflection point in our country. If we don't follow up, if we don't hold those people accountable, if we don't hold the members of Congress accountable who supported them, there is something wrong with our institutions and with our government, and it will take a long time to recover from that. If ever, yeah. So, uh, General, what can we expect from this Taliban government versus the one that we toppled 20 years ago? Will the country, yeah. will the country return to the darkness that permeated the country, or will the Taliban attempt to be more outward-facing? Yeah, I, I don't know, Michael. I, I can't answer that. All I can tell you is 
as many have already said on on cable news, it, it is a different country that the Taliban is trying to control. Uh, there have been many people liberated. They have tasted uh, freedom. And, and some great philosopher once said, once you taste freedom, you can never go back to authoritarianism. Uh, especially I'm concerned about the women. But I think, as in many nations of the world, the women become the strength. And they may be the ones that may lead Afghanistan to a new future if they can afford to do that and if they don't fear for their safety and their lives. There are going to be many Navalny moments in Afghanistan with the women. Um, I, I believe that the Taliban are going to have a much harder time gaining control for a couple of reasons. Number one, first, because of the dem democratic institutions that have evolved and people have seen. But number two, and this, this hits your sweet spot, that's the money. The Taliban is not going to be able to get the money that they have right now in the near future. The IMF have already cut their funding. They're, they can only sell so many drugs because that's how they get their money in the first place in selling cocaine and heroin. Uh, we're going to see a lack of support uh, by the countries around Afghanistan. Everybody's saying China and Russia and Iran are going to jump in and support them. I don't believe that for a second. China is going to have problems with a uh, Islamist government, uh, with their Uyghur population. Russia doesn't want any kind of Taliban going in and influencing the Chechens. Uh, Iran isn't real happy as a, as a Shia nation with a, a Sunni Islamist uh, organization running a country on their border. So I don't think they're going to get support in the region. Right now, the Taliban doesn't care. They're an organization that says, we just want to govern this Islamic caliphate. But I think over as time progresses, they are going to continue to have problems with civil war in many of the Afghan provinces. They are going to lose money. And if they don't do things right, they're going to lose all sorts of international support. And I think they want that, that international support. And I think they need it they desperately. They which, need it, which, yeah. Which yeah, makes me so skeptical when I listen to, and it's irrelevant whether it's Fox, MSNBC, CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, it doesn't make a difference. Everybody right now are speaking pure hypothetically. Nobody knows. Everybody's now, you know, predictors. Well, stop predicting what's going to happen in Afghanistan in six months from now, in 60 days from now, yeah. right? Why don't you, if you want to predict something, go predict Powerball and give me the numbers to it, right? I mean, everybody's, <laughs> everybody has this psychic crystal, this, this psychic ability or crystal ball that they know what's going to happen. Here's something that we do know. We know that a female journalist in Afghanistan, was able and permitted to interview the head of the Taliban. And he took and he took the meeting and she did her job and she reported on what was going on and so on. That's not something you ever would have seen happen 20 years ago no. or 10 years ago. So the question then becomes, are they trying to change? And I'm not saying that they're not going to institute Sharia law. They most certainly are. That's and will. and will. That's what they believe. And that's what they've been fighting all these years for. But that doesn't mean that a woman can't have a job. They may make certain um, allowances, right, that brings them closer to modern, you know, modern democracy thinking. Yeah, no, it's true. And what, what you're seeing with that interview, as an example, is one of the things the Taliban has learned. 
They know that public relations is important. They didn't care about in that, that in the past. In fact, in the past, their public relations was intimidations by cutting off heads in the, in the soccer field and all that kind of stuff. Today, they realize to get the world support, they can't repress women. They can't do some of the things they were going to do. Now, that's, that's in the open, and that's for public consumption. What they do behind the scenes is a whole different story. But what we're still seeing today, Michael, on, on the streets is we're seeing the fighters. We're seeing the pipe swingers, the, the guys who have been fighting for the last 15 years in the countryside and in the rural areas of, of, the, of the country. These are not savvy guys. So when you see them around the airport beating people with padlocks and that kind of stuff, these are just knucklehead gang members right now. The question is going to be, will they be able to develop a security force? Will they provide public services? Will they govern? I don't think they'll be able to. And no amount of intimidation is going to counter a population that can say, we will be able to strike back from that. So I, again, that's why I say, I don't know what's going to happen next. I have hopes that maybe there will be a popular uprising in Afghanistan that was much better than, you know, maybe in, in each of the provinces that is much better than President Ghani, former President Ghani, could develop with a federal government, but I don't uh, know. How could you? It's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And then as the United States right. of America, under the Spy administration, we will figure out what we need to do to offset, to counterbalance whatever they do. But in the meantime, people are leaving. I just learned about a new investment platform, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. They're called Masterworks.io, and they're democratizing one of the largest and old asset classes. That's high-end art. Billionaires have been scooping up Monet's and Van Gogh's for decades, while the rest of us had to watch from the sideline. But now, anyone can invest in multi-million dollar paintings thanks to a recently changed law. So why should you invest in art? For starters, contemporary art pieces outperformed the S&P returns by 174% between 1995 and 2020. They've got masterpieces from artists like Banksy and Basquiat. Not the tacky fake stuff that the Donald hangs in his homes. In fact, 86% of wealth managers agree that art should be a part of their wealth offering. And now you can get in on the action. Demand is exploding, but they're giving me a few passes to let you skip the wait list. So just head to masterworks.io slash mea culpa. That's masterworks.io slash mea culpa. And see the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Should we as America, should we have foreseen the collapse of the Afghan army so quickly? Because... Like foreign policy experts are saying the intelligence was clearly there, but other pushbacks saying that it was unforeseen and expected this result in months, not days. What do you believe? Yeah, I, I believe the majority of the Afghan army, the ANA and the NFT, they they were okay. Not great, not world-class fighters, certainly not in a tradition of any modern country but they were getting there and there were a lot of them. Uh, their officers were crooked. The corruption in, in uh, <laughs> the corruption in Afghanistan makes the Trump administration look like amateurs. I'm not sure about that uh, one. I'm going to disagree with you on that one. <laughs> All right, but it's pretty bad. And so when you're talking about leaders, generals, colonels, 
who are corrupt, who are dealing with local officials who are corrupt, who are taking bribes from the drug money. And they say, hey, we can get rich. And we already know that the central government in Kabul under Ghani is a little bit corrupt, too. And they're not looking out for our for our best interest. It's going to fold pretty quickly. And I think, you know, what happened first were the governments and the senior leaders folded and then the soldiers say, well, look, if the government doesn't support us and the senior leaders in our own military don't support us, why the hell are we, uh, you know, uh, posing, being posed a threat that they're going to cut our heads off? I'm out of here. I'm taking my uniform off and getting the hell out of here. Now, what I'll tell you, Michael, is if I'm the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division in Fort Bragg, South Carolina, and my soldiers start realizing that me and my entire staff are corrupt on a mission and we're taking bribes and we're going to split at the first opportunity and we're not going to lead them. And oh, by the way, our government is corrupt too. And they're not going to support us and send us money. And when they do send us our checks, we're only going to get half of it because it's skimmed off the top by our senior leaders. You know what? If I'm an 82nd Airborne guy, the cream of our crop, I'm probably going to desert too. So th- these are things that happen in army armies that don't have morale, spirit, trust in their leadership, trust in their government, and, oh, by the way, a relationship with their countrymen that are asking them to fight for them. And that's what Afghanistan didn't have. Wow. Wow. I mean, there are just so many similarities to the Trump administration. My, my mind is blowing right now, talking about all yep. the corruption flowing down here. And yeah. it would be, it would, <laughs> the problem is, as Americans, where do you go? Where, where, what's better than this country? How do you how do you go AWOL from America? You just don't. Well, you know, can, can I can bring up you bring up a great point? Because I think many of us who have been to foreign countries and have seen corruption in places like Nigeria or Iraq or Afghanistan or any of those kind of places. And we say, man, that country is dysfunctional right now. They have some real problems and they're not treating their people right. When we saw the Trump administration pulling the same games, we said, that's not what we're built on as a nation. We're built on institutions and values and policies and the kinds of things that show people what right look like. So for those of uh, uh, Americans that tr- thought Trump was great because he was a great grifter and he was making all kinds of money hand over fist and you know he was scamming people and boy, isn't that neat that he's able to do that and has all the gold towers and all that. For those of us who know how much that serves as a cancer within the organization, we knew what his kind of personality and his kind of approach and those around him, like you mentioned, Secretary Pompeo and others, would bring to the nation. And that's what's unfortunate about what's happened over the last four years. Yeah. Well, General, let me ask you this then. In all the criticism of President Biden and what they did and did not do correctly— There's been little mention of how much of this was the result of Trump's aggressive withdrawal policy and Mike Pompeo's negotiating with the Taliban behind the back of the Afghani government. How much of that do you think caused the instability that would allow for the Taliban's surprising resurgence and how quickly they took Kabul? I I don't want to put a percentage on it, Michael, but I'd say probably about at least 60 percent. Uh, and the reason that you, you might think that that's low from a percentage perspective, it's because it built on the things that had been taking place over the last 15 or so years, 
with the corruption in the Afghan government, with the lack of trust between the soldiers and the and the government, with you know an inability to get to the province, the, the different provinces within Afghanistan, and us taking our eye off the ball. But I think, truthfully, those actions by the former administration over the last ten to eighteen months prior to him leaving office contributed significantly to what we're seeing today. It set up, it set the table for the disaster. Uh, and I, and I, you know, President Biden has not been, certainly not been perfect in the way he's addressed this issue. There's been many faults and we can after action that later on. But I got to tell you, he was, he was in this particular case and probably quite a few others, I believe he was given a raw deal to begin with. Well, if you would, maybe my listeners aren't 100% aware of exactly what Trump through Mike Pompeo did by legitimately going behind the back of the Afghani government who we were there for and talking with the Taliban. If you would, take us through a small little history lesson, a timeline, so to speak. Well, I mean, I, I can't quite remember the months. But over a year period of time, the negotiations were going on in Doha. And when I think the American people found out, and this should, this should have caused a great deal of explosion within the American media, but it didn't seem to. Wait a minute. We're talking the U.S. government under Khalizad is only negotiating with the Taliban, the, the so-called government in exile, the one that we've been fighting for the year and there's no Afghan representatives at the table, I don't get that. So that took place throughout the entire peace process. We also remember it was probably almost a year ago when President Trump said he was going to invite the Taliban to uh, to Camp David. There was also the implication of forcing the Afghan government uh, to release 5,000 prisoners from from a prison in Afghanistan that had commit these prisoners had committed crimes against the Afghan people and U.S. and Afghan forces. And one of them is now allegedly Baradar is going to be probably the leader of the Taliban government in Kabul. He was a prisoner. Several of these guys were in Guantanamo. Now, rightfully or wrongfully, I don't know. I don't know the case files on it. But we're talking about uh, negotiating it would have been as if we had ne- negotiated with Goebbels during World War II when, when we thought the fall of, uh, you know, and, and reinstating Hitler if he hadn't killed himself after we defeated, you know, the German war machine. It just doesn't make sense. And to not bring the Afghan government to the table and have them have a say in what was going on after they had been attempting to lead the country for 15 or so years is, in my view, just criminal uh, at, at, a, at a level that I, I just can't explain. It's just amazing to me. Well, there's a lot of things under the Trump administration that are criminal. And thank God that we have Cy Vance and the DA and our, um, our great attorney general as well, Tish James, because Lord knows the Southern District of New York's not doing a goddamn thing. But I will ask you this question. What? Let, let, me, let me insert. Can I insert something on what you just said? Because this is important, Michael. You're talking about what Cy Vance is doing or the SDNY or whatever. Those are personal. I mean, those things are going to go against uh, former President Trump personally. And it is going to be a a stain on his character 
and who he is, and it'll cost them money or perhaps jail time or whatever. The problem I have is during the last four years, he has led our nation in areas where we are going to have difficulty recovering from the same kind of grift and criminal activities that we saw from his administration over those four years. That's the difference. I'm, I'm glad if he goes to jail or is fined or loses all his wealth, that's great. That's on him. What I'm concerned about is he represented us, the 330 million United States citizens, in a way that tainted our character, tainted our values, and tainted what we stand for on the world stage. And that's what just gives me all kinds of problems. See, I brought that up not so much to bring him personally into it, but rather right. uh, to sort of express the fact that a lot of people's fear is that Donald Trump is going to run again in 2024. And I can assure you that he's not going to, because rest assured, you're right. The shit stain he left on our country's reputation, on our democracy, on our Constitution, will take years. And I don't believe that Biden administration, especially not under Merrick Garland right now, are going to do enough in order to correct it. But the question I really have for you in this in this genre is, what was the benefit of that? Like, what do you think was the benefit of that in the mind of Donald Trump? I mean, to sit there and to engage in conversation with the Taliban in a way that disrespects the people that have been your allies for two decades and think that it's yeah, justified, don't... it's correct, it's militarily smart. Who in the military gave him such shit advice or did it come from like the steve millers of the world or the mark meadows or these or boy genius jared himself i, I don't know uh what i will tell you is why did it happen haven't you heard michael he was the ultimate deal maker he could get stuff done in a very unusual and and provocative manner that doesn't go according to system and as we talked about the last time i was on your show it's transactional versus transformational you're only worried about the current. You know, I get this from you. You don't get something from me and I win. Unfortunately, when we're talking about government, you're talking about transformational and how it evolves to better set the society apart and, and advance as the years go by. He wasn't interested in that. It was the pleasure of the now that I think Mr. Trump was interested in. And you know that more than yeah. I do. Well, who's going to build the wall? Mexico. Right. Who's going to pay for the wall? Yeah. Mexico. Right. Yeah. Sure. Donald. So now today um, on her Substack, the journalist Laura Rosen placed part of the blame for the Afghanistan crisis on the broken U.S. confirmation process. In response to the piece, you wrote, and I quote, a lack of bipartisanship, broken government can have such far reaching second and third order effects a big reason why we must be careful in selecting the right senators and members of Congress. Can you unpack for my listeners how this breaks down? And is there a senator that you feel is most guilty of holding up the nominees? Oh, God. Yeah. Well, first, I'll address that issue. There are several that are guilty of holding up the nominees, and they're all on the Republican side. It's it's Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, uh, I, I can't think of any more right now, but I could probably name some more if I if I had to. Um, but to the point that I was making when I supported Laura Rosen's really good article is that 
Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm an independent, Michael. I always have been. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican because I think the best ideas in America win. And those best ideas come from both sides of an argument. Uh, and it's, it's so good to have teamwork where you can say, hey, I might not agree with you, but you've got a good idea there and we can incorporate it into my concept and, and we can actually do better in the long run. That's how government uh, was, was visualized by our founding fathers, that people from different sides could bring the best argument together to make a more perfect nation. Now, whenever you divide into the partisan clans, and by the way, our, our founding fathers uh, offered some, some warning to include George Washington offering some warning in his farewell address about partisan issues and what it could cause for the government to do. Uh, as soon as you go into hyper-partisan mode, which we are in currently on both sides, I think, uh, you're going to have problems. So the idea that I think uh, Ms. Rosen was bringing about is let's get the best ideas from both sides. Let's not hold up the administration of someone we don't like just because we don't like them. Let's look at the quality of the nominee. We have, we have done away with looking at the quality of the nominees, whether it be for the Supreme Court or for the, any position in the administration, and just saying, well, that's Biden's guy, so I'm going to vote no. And we can see that. I mean, Josh Hawley has voted no my senator from Missouri has voted no on every single uh, Biden nominee, as, as I know. He may have voted yes on one or two of them, but it's just that he wants to be the guy that says no to everything. And that's just disruptive. And it's not it's not playing for the betterment of America. It's actually what I hate most about what Trump did to this country. It's Donald Trump made it OK that only my position is right and if you don't agree with me, well, F you, all right? And I don't care, and I'm going to fight tooth and nail for my position, and I'm not interested in your position unless it mirrors mine. And you can't run a country right. that way. It just doesn't work. And my another fear that I have is based upon that ideology that if, in fact, that the Republicans end up taking the House— What's the likelihood that they're going to try then to impeach Joe Biden? They're going to start ratcheting up the same bullshit about Hunter. You want to go after Hunter, go after Hunter. It's none of my business, right? And so on. But they're going to look to try to figure out how to do as much damage to this man. And then you have a lame duck presidency. And then who suffers? The American people. Does, do the senators you- and congressmen give a shit about it? No. It's all about themselves. It's all about their power. It's all about what they can grift from this country, thinking that they're special. All they did is win a fucking election, right? They didn't come up with a cure for cancer. They didn't do, they didn't do anything right. that's deservant of that their insurance policy should be different than yours or mine or anybody else's simply because, what are they, the mini supreme leaders? It's a joke. Yeah. It's an absolute joke. On that note, uh, I'm I'm in an interesting part of Florida. It's somewhat red where I live now. I used to live in Orlando. I'm in a different part now. Um, right down the street, there's a flag flying. There's two flags flying, actually. One is, don't blame me, I voted for Trump. And the other one said, and it's been flying for six months now, and the other one says, impeach Biden. So what you're talking about, that drumbeat is certainly out there, and it's dangerous. 
It's very dangerous. But you know, um, General, as you said, and I quote, there will eventually be a last plane out, and the images of those left behind will be heart-wrenching. We must prepare for that, as well as changes in the environment around the airport. If you would, discuss with my listeners, what should we expect? What should we do? What can we do? Well, I, I don't know, truthfully, Michael, how it's going to evolve militarily. But when the, the throng of people outside the airport see one plane left, uh, and when that will be, I don't know. But as this ebbs and flows toward the end, not everyone is going to be on that plane. So there are going to be the reporters out there interviewing the people who are going to be sobbing with little children. And America will be asking, how come we didn't get everybody out? And the fact of the matter is, is because we don't evacuate countries. You know, some people have to live where they live. It's, you know, as harsh as that may sound. Um, but what I was talking about in terms of the environment, and I got to be careful of this because I'll create panic by even saying this. Uh, we could see uh, some chaos. And will those Marines and Army soldiers that are on the ground defending the runway have to shoot to protect airplanes? Will they have to put in full defensive gear? Uh, you know, John Kirby, the Pentagon press secretary and a good friend of mine was quizzed yesterday on why there was close air support over the Kabul airport. It's a prudent measure when you have that many crowds and you don't know what might happen uh, and what kind of attacks might take place. If, if a group of 100 Afghans started attacking and bringing hatchets against a C-17, what could, as it's rolling down the airport, what could happen? I don't know. But what I'm saying is we might want to prepare for scenes of combat. I mean, I, I'll just put it that way, for fighting, uh, where U.S. or young 18-year-olds who just came over from the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, who may not have seen combat before, will be faced with threats to their lives. And then then you're going to see some real chaos, potentially. I hope that doesn't happen. But that's always a part of planning for a NEO. What do you do in terms of final defensive measures? And when that last plane leaves and the film's you know, film crew is on the ground filming it will take off and there's still people there, which there will be, it will be heart-wrenching. And there will be a lot of people saying that the president's a failure and the military's a failure because they didn't get everybody out. And I don't know how anyone answers those kinds of questions. Well, you can't answer them unless, of course, you're Donald Trump, the world's greatest Tuesday <laughs> night quarterback for a Monday night game. Because if you've noticed, he's never, yeah. ever said anything that isn't accurate. That's not correct. He is the yeah. world's greatest prognosticator, despite the fact that what the moron doesn't realize is that he was constantly covered 24-7. His words are memorialized right. on television, in reports by journalists, and so on. You're right. Everybody's attacking Biden right now. Oh, why did you only leave 2,500 soldiers? You should have left 3,500. If he left 3,500, what would, what would fucking Trump turn around and say? You should have left 5,000, yeah. right? Or you should have, yeah. you should have had others. So it's always easy to criticize, right, the day after because, oh, well, of course this is what I would have done. Meanwhile, we all know that he was the single most incompetent individual with no military experience, refused to listen to his generals because why? 
this is his words, his gut knows more than his generals. That's insulting. Yeah. And that goes back to the whole thing that I brought up before, that we should say thank you to people who are in the military, whether they fought in Afghanistan, they fought in Iraq, whether they fought anywhere, because they're putting their lives on the line for us, for our democracy. And that's why Donald Trump was an absolute disaster to this country, to which I take responsibility for helping to promote. But, you know, General, as we wind down the hour, the time, as I told you at the beginning, goes by very quickly. I have really just one last question for you. In taking control of the country, the Taliban has released thousands of prisoners from Bagram and elsewhere, including senior al-Qaeda members. How much of a concern should there be about these men resuming terrorism against the United States or elsewhere? Yeah, I, there's been a lot of talk about that, Michael. And, and I think where we have to be concerned of terrorist threats from anywhere in the world, I personally don't see Afghanistan as being the main place anytime soon. Now, it may evolve in that. It may evolve into a safe haven. But there are plenty other places in the world where uh, terrorism exists and it's a threat to the United States. Yemen, Somalia, Mali, Niger. I mean, we, we could tick off, you know, the, the entire Maghreb in northern Africa. Uh, we could tick off places that terrorists might come from. Um, but I think over the last 20 years, the intelligence community and the military and the government of the United States, has, the FBI, the Homeland Security, has learned a lot about terrorism that we did not know in uh, 20, 2001. My biggest concern is, 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 is the FBI's is the potential for domestic terrorism. We've got a bunch of nutcases in our country right now who have been given the authority to attack. And that's what concerns me the most right now from a inside the United States perspective. We can deal, the intelligence community can deal with folks outside the, the, the United States. Going back to the question, Afghanistan certainly could turn into a terrorist haven again. But I'm not sure that that is our biggest threat in the near term. Oh, I totally agree with you on that. I was going to say the exact same thing. Look, it is inarguable that we have the greatest intelligence community in the world. And they have, they're, they're evolving. You know, I always say like the FBI, um, the, you know, um, national security um, forces and so on. Every day they're evolving. Every day they're learning new information. They're learning new techniques for obtaining information. And they have done a marvelous job in keeping this country safe from outside yeah. forces, which brings up exactly what you said. While they are constantly monitoring chatter and groups and other forms of um, intelligence ga data gathering, it's much more difficult, much more difficult when it comes to domestic. Um, look at what, for example, what happened in Michigan when they tried to, you know, to kidnap the governor. Look at what happened on January 6th. That's why January yeah. 6th is so important, as you just said. Right? It is so yeah. important that we hold those accountable because if we can't trust our neighbor, whether you're Republican, Democrat, independent or non-voting at all, it makes no difference. It makes no difference. If you are an American, my fear is not supposed to be that my next door neighbor who is looking to do damage to me, to the country and so on. It's it should always be 
outside forces, not inside. And I just don't know how we're going to be able to bring back that sense of normalcy, that sense of patriotism, because it doesn't look like the country has the patriotism that we used to have. Like after 9-11, as an example, I remember whether you were Republican or Democrat, when everybody was walking down the street, I went running for my daughter. I went, I was downtown. I was in the um, the 18th, uh, 19th um, street. And I remember running up to 77th street in order to see that my daughter was okay in a suit with shoes. I was at my accountant's office, believe it or not. And I ran up uh, to 77th street, people helping one another. There was so much dust there. Um, If you had water in your hands, you were putting it on somebody else's face, everybody making sure everybody, it was all about patriotism. We've lost that patriotism. That's my opinion. We, We, yeah, we have, but we're going to get back to it, Michael. I'm, I'm convinced of it. I'm an eternal optimist. I actually believe that sometimes we need a Donald Trump to show us how bad we potentially can be. But in doing, in seeing that, then the requirement is to recover from it and be better people. I mean, I, I've had the opportunity all my life to serve with great soldiers. And every time, they, every time I needed a lift, they inspired me. Uh, because of the selflessness. I, I saw a picture today of a, a Marine coddling a baby at the Kabul airport, you know, trying to t- trying to keep her, uh, the, the little baby from from being scared and concerned about what was going on. That's the kind of folks I got to serve with over my 40, close to 40 year career. And I believe that's what America is. It's just that we have to get past some of the things we've seen most re- recently that's going to be tough and it's going to take a lot of effort. Uh, but this is just a downtime and I believe that we're starting to go up again. Well, General, thank you so much. And by the way, from your mouth to God's ears, I thank you for <laughs> your service. I thank you for your time. I thank you for your um, insight. And I just thank you for joining me again on Mea Culpa. Michael, always a pleasure. You have a, you have a great 93 more days, okay? 93 more days. Thank you, General. <laughs> All right, babe. Bye. Take care. And now for today's mea culpa. I want everyone to think for a moment about what we went through as a nation in Afghanistan over the past two decades. First, there is the dollar amount, $2 trillion. As I mentioned earlier, how many homeless could that house or how many bridges and roads could it build? Could we have subsidized more prescriptions? The fact is the war has been a tremendous drain on American resources. That money, reallocated, can now go towards fulfilling any number of promises made to the American people. Then there is the loss of life and limb from our brave warriors who were sent to fight and die and were largely ignored until it became politically convenient to worry about them in any material way. But this was never supposed to be about nation building or creating a stable democracy. What we built in Afghanistan, most of it was propped up by money and corruption and had no stable base. Remove the United States from that equation and it all collapses in a period of days. Just look at President Ghani fleeing the country with a suitcase stuffed with over a hundred million dollars. Tell me or any soldier's parent that we should stay one more day. Enough American blood has been spilled. Enough American resources have been spent. Enough lives have been lost. It's time to come home for good. 
I only hope that we have the will as a nation to support President Biden in this one crucial endeavor. And that's getting out. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more, all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.